this is the in focus podcast from the hindu welcome to the hindus in focus podcast i'm zubeda hamid your host for today 2023 is said to be a landmark year for india's population trajectory as the country is predicted to overtake china to become the world's most populous nation and india will remain in that position for several more years the advantages experts have pointed out is the demographic dividend we will have a massive number of young people in the working age group and a relatively lower number of those needing care such as the elderly and young children at least for a couple of decades but how well does india place to harness this young population for us to grow economically do we have the policies for education skilling and health in place and what happens when some southern states have populations that age faster than some northern states to explore these issues and more we have with us today professor sonaldi desai distinguished university professor of the university of maryland professor sonaldi desai welcome to the hindus in focus podcast Hello, thank you for inviting me. Professor, India is set to overtake China's population this year and will remain the most populous country in the world for some decades. However, our latest National Family Health Survey has shown that the country's fertility rate has been declining and is now nationally at 2.0. What are the concerns around our population? Are they justified? And could you talk to us a little bit about that? I think it is time for us to move past the mindset of overpopulation and population control and think about developing a policy that addresses reproductive health needs of the individuals. But there are two key components to what I just said. First, getting over the mindset of population control. India is the largest country in the world and it's going to remain so for foreseeable future. However, our population growth rate is now at a replacement level and likely to dip below or at least our total fertility rate is at replacement level and likely to dip below a uh, replacement uh, in the coming years at least slightly what this means is that two parents are replacing themselves with two children if we fall substantially below this our future generations would be smaller than the current generation leading to the kind of demographic cliff that china is facing where an ever smaller population of working age uh, individuals will need to care for a very large population of elderly i think we should learn from china's experience and benefit from a more even population growth rather than worrying about you know uh, population control below what we have already managed to achieve at the same time a second part of my statement is also important okay uh, we don't need to think of family planning program from just the perspective of population control i think we also need to think about it from the perspective of human welfare we should make sure that the family planning and reproductive health services are available to young people women in remote areas and poor women so that they don't have to face uh, uh, unplanned or unwanted pregnancies resulting in uh, health risks to mother and poor care to children uh, so we do need to focus on providing good reproductive health care but not necessarily from the perspective of for population control 
Doctor, you were talking to us about the working age populations. We are now at that stage in India where our working age population is high and our dependent populations of children and the elderly are relatively low. Economists have predicted that in the next 25 years or so, the country can reap the benefits of this with the right policies. How well placed are we at this point to take advantage of this demography dividend? I think at the moment, we are taking only minimal advantage of the demographic dividend. In order to take full benefit, we really need to have high quality jobs and high skilled people who fill those jobs. I think there is a lot of discussion in the policy setting about improving skill level of our workers. Uh, this is particularly so now that the ASA 22 has recorded a drop in learning levels. Nationally, only about 70% of the class eight children can read the basic text in 2022, which used to be 73% in 2018. So COVID has clearly led to a decline in skill level, and there is a lot of awareness around it. However, the second part, creating jobs which actually absorb some of these people and can use their skills has received very little attention. I think economists have this uh, ideological belief that if we have skilled workers, the jobs will come. Okay? But we actually see vast underemployment among our educated youth. And this tells us that you know, this assumption is too optimistic. Instead, I think we do need to develop economic policies that emphasize job creation for this uh, large number of working age population. So, Doctor, you spoke to us a little bit just now about education and how uh, learning losses have happened due to the two-year COVID pandemic. The need to focus on health and education is being stressed by, money, by many in order to help that working age population achieve its potential. Uh, taking into consideration this year's union budget, how are we doing in these key sectors of health and education? Our health budget looks like it has dropped slightly in 2023. Perhaps it may be due to the passing of the pandemic and some of the pandemic-related expenses are passed. Our education budget has increased slightly. But frankly, I'm not sure we should be focusing on the budget. Okay? I don't believe that challenge to our health and educational systems is coming purely out of lack of resources. I think there are many other issues that we need to pay attention to. Uh, specifically, I think we have a lack of sensible planning that improves the outcomes. Let me give you some examples. Our health systems have remained focused on um, communicable diseases and prevention. Okay? Whereas what we are actually seeing is that there is a rising burden of non-communicable diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure and cancer. These diseases need better screening and pharmacological treatment. I don't think we are well placed to be able to do some of this screening and treatment. Our focus has still been sort of, you know, what it was 20, 25 years ago, dealing with uh, diseases like diarrhea and other communicable diseases. We have not addressed things like antibiotic resistance. You know, you can walk into any chemist's shop in any part of the country and buy antibiotics without any restriction. Okay. The way our antibiotic usage is growing and self-medication is growing, actually we'll be facing a major crisis of drug-resistant TB and other such diseases. So I think we need to think quite a bit about 
how do we plan, how do we regulate, and how do we deliver? Now, delivery is also another major issue. For example, when it comes to school and education, it's fairly clear that even though government school per pupil expenditure is higher than private school per pupil expenditure when we combine both the government and um, family expenditure, government schools are not performing necessarily better. So you focus on better pedagogy, better management of the education, better outcomes are all things that we need to focus on. Budget is needed, finances are needed, but just uh, staying focused on budget and finances and not emphasizing improvement in performance and systems would get us nowhere. You spoke to us a little bit about the need for reproductive health measures as well, doctor. Could you speak to us a little bit more about that? Uh, Is there a large unmet uh, need for contraception? I think um, unmet need for contraception is focused in some very specific pockets. So, for example, much of our contraceptive service delivery uh, is focused around women who have finished having children and would either get sterilized or would use some long-acting contraception. But we don't pay enough attention to young people uh, who have not yet begun childbearing, not allow, not providing sufficient uh, access to contraception to this ever-growing population of young people. Okay, makes it difficult for some of our younger pe- uh, population to focus on education, employment, and so on. You know, in India, women get married and within a year they have a child. Many of these women would like to be able to delay childbearing, uh, continue their labor force engagement, uh, get settled in a career before having a child. And these are not the kind of women to whom we are able to provide reproductive health services. I also think that with rising education and delayed fertility for some of the very educated women, treatment for infertility is also going to become an issue. So this is another area in which we might need to focus. Doctor, you said a little bit just now about how uh, women would like to delay childbearing uh, in order to continue their participation in the workforce. What is India's female participation in the workforce like? It seems to be low, especially compared to those of other Asian countries. And does this also need to be improved in order to take full advantage of our demography development? That's an excellent question and comment. Uh, I think that it's very clear that Indian labor force participation rate is low. The question is not about the number of women who are in the labor force, but where they are working. Pretty much most of the Indian women who are in the labor force are working on family farms, taking care of uh, cattle and animals, or working in um, small petty businesses. We don't seem to have uh, opportunities for women to work uh, in formal sector or wage employment until they get to a very high level of education. So, for example, some research that I have been doing with uh, a colleague, uh, Professor Esha Chatterjee from IIT Kanpur shows that uneducated women are likely to work. College graduated women are more likely to work. It's the women with class 6, 8, 10, 12 education that find it very difficult to get any kind of a job 
particularly if they are living in rural areas. For men, uh, if you have this moderate level of education, there are opportunities in things like um, truck driving, uh, postal service delivery, mobile shop repairing. All of these are not occupations that are typically open to women. And so what happens is that we have this slump of for employment opportunities for women in this, um, you know, post-primary, secondary level education. Now, this is the area where our education is growing, right? So a lot of people are getting primary education, a lot of people are getting secondary education, but college education still remains rare. So this bulk of women who are in this middle grade level of education uh, who are too educated to work as manual laborers, but not educated enough to become receptionists, okay, are somewhere in between and unable to find work. Frankly, in terms of demographic dividend, the population size that we are talking about because of fertility change is dwarfed in comparison to this underemployed army of uh, women, potential women workers. So bringing them into labor force could make a huge difference to our economic productivity. So this is somewhere where skill training, for instance, could be considered? I think skill training could be considered. The problem, of course, is that all of our skill training for women seems to be around either tailoring or a beautician. <laughs> and I don't know how many beauty parlors can villages sustain. Okay, So I think that skill training is needed. But along with it, we need a mindset change, which says that, you know, women can do anything that men can do and uh, allowing them entry into formerly male dominated occupations uh, is definitely needed. We also need a mindset change for the employers. Okay. Because employers have often have a mindset uh, that um, you know, women um, will pay more attention to their families, they are more likely to drop out of the labor force, and hence there is a level of discrimination against female employees, uh, for which we do nothing. You know, even in our uh, government jobs, uh, we think in terms of reservations for uh, scheduled caste and scheduled tribes. But we don't think about non-discrimination against women. We have essentially make no efforts to make these workplaces uh, female-friendly, welcoming, and at least train employers that uh, you do need to change your mindset about employing women. That's a very interesting point, Doctor, that we don't have uh, female-friendly workplaces in the first place. Uh, moving on, to, uh, Professor, could you um, we could you talk to us about uh, differences within India in itself? We know broadly that um, that in some of the southern states, the population growth has been much slower compared to some of the states in the north. How is this going to play out uh, in the future, and how will it affect policies? I think that this is a very uh, going to pose the kind of social challenges that we haven't thought about in the past. For example, it has now increasingly begun, uh, become common that in Tamil Nadu, you would have um, Tamil workers who are employed in um, auto part uh, manufacturing facilities and some of the manual labor and construction labor is being done by Bihari and uh, workers from Odisha. You go to Kerala, Kerala actually... Uh, 
thousands of Bihari workers will leave Kerala to go back home for the Chhatra festival. So it's very clear that we have a fairly substantial migration taking place from north to south uh, to meet some of the labor market needs of the southern states. In addition, we have some major political challenges, uh, which is very much um, kind of a time bomb that's brewing. So we had decided as a nation that we will not uh, reward states which are falling behind in uh, uh, population management policies and allow them to have greater number of parliamentary constituency seats. Usually our expectation is that parliamentary constituencies are allocated based on population size. But uh, constitutional amendment had decided that we will not be doing that until a 2031 census um, and we'll just uh, freeze the allocation to where it was. Now, as a result, what has happened is we have this incredible imbalance uh, in representations um, that Uttar Pradesh has about an average of 25 lakh persons per constituency, while Tamil Nadu has about 18.5 lakhs. And this is based on 2011 census. By now, it's likely to have even deteriorated. So in some ways, what we have done is that we did try to make an effort not to reward states where population growth rate was high. But now we may have reached a point at which this is a restriction that deserves to be removed to ensure that there is equal representation and equal stay in national government across the nation. So this is something I think we're going to have to think about. Similarly, some of the allocations under the various finance commissions will also need to take into account the changing population distribution of the country and ensure that um, some of the northern states are not uh, underprivileged. At the same time, make sure that the needs of the southern states are uh, met. So there will need to be a political renegotiation uh, of the way in which finances are distributed. Some of these issues are politically very contentious, but nonetheless, uh, at some point or the other, the nation will have to address that. But doctor, what does data actually show us? We know, as you told us, that the fertility rate is declining overall across the country. Does that mean that some of these North Indian states where the population decline has been slower, but are they also in the process of declining? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, today, I mean, even con- countries which uh, were formerly formerly high growth states, okay, like Rajasthan and Uttar Pradesh, are showing a lo- significantly lower fertility rate. Uh, even Bihar, which is pretty much the highest uh, fertility among the uh, larger states, uh, only has a TFR of, of three point two. So it's very clear that all of these states are also making progress and they will continue to make progress. So I think that at this point, our focus really should be on ensuring that there is good health care and good reproductive health services available uh, to all areas, including some of these poorer and less educated states, and then let nature take its course. How much does female education have to do with this, doctor, with, with the lowering of fertility rates? Historically, more educated women have had fewer children, and that continues to be the case. So the increase in education certainly is associated with decline in fertility. 
part of it is i think that educated women may may be able to better negotiate health systems to be able to get uh, reproductive health care for themselves but part of it is also that as women get educated uh, their aspirations for their children increases and they start thinking about investing in fewer children but more more investment and actually it's very interesting you know one of the most striking things that i have noticed in my research with professor alpha basu from cornell is that increasingly urban and educated women and men are stopping at a single child whether the child is a boy or a girl so the number of one child families that you are going to see around you is actually surprisingly large that is interesting doctor in terms of how we are placed with regard to china so we are uh, china has now gone into the space where they have um, a huge um, a huge elderly population and a slightly less working age population are we also on a curve bound to reach there at that point somewhere no i think india has actually been fortunate in having a slower population decline that our um, proportion population that will be elderly will never reach china's excessive level because at some point they really went into extremely low fertility because of one child policy and in spite of relaxing that policy they seem unable to recover out of it however it's also clear that india is going to have an increasingly aging population kerala and other southern states are already facing some of these challenges so aging is something that we will be dealing with down the line and we will need to think about how to handle it both because of the lower number or fertility decline and lower number of younger population coming into the working ages but also because life expectancy is growing at the older ages so the two things combined will give us a fairly steadily increasing uh, elderly population this is a major challenge in some ways for us because what we haven't yet recognized is that not only will we be dealing with an aging population but a large and much larger share of that population is going to be female because women tend to live longer than men okay so higher life expectancy for women at older ages coupled with an aging population will basically imply that we will have a large number of elderly women many of whom will be widowed many of whom will not have accumulated um, formal work experience pension gratuity etc and so we are in some sense the aging challenges that we will be dealing with uh, will be significant and different from china doctor getting back to the advantage of the how to reap the demography dividend advantage could you talk to us about any other countries in asia uh, particularly in our neighborhood that have managed to do this and therefore uh, managed to see benefits in their economy are there any lessons that india can draw from other countries in the region so the classic example of course is uh, countries like um, korea taiwan singapore etc uh who had smart economic policies and a uh, decline in fertility which went hand in hand allowing them to uh, take advantage of the demographic dividend 
But you know, one of the things that I have begun to wonder is whether we are overemphasizing demographic dividend. Just the way we overemphasize overpopulation and population growth at one point in time, perhaps we are overemphasizing the potential for demographic dividend. I think maybe what we should be thinking about are good economic policies that emphasizes emphasize health and education and encourage job growth. And um, um, we will be lucky if we have large number of workers that we can take advantage of. But uh, that's not something we can bank on because demographic dividend window is pretty short. Uh, we should be thinking in terms of long-term outcomes for India rather than you know, decadal or 20-year time frame. So would you say that the urgent need right now is upping skills and job creation? Yes, undoubtedly, those are the two biggest needs for the country. Now, some of the things that go into job creation uh, also deserve attention. For example, some of the work that we have done shows that um, building roads, actually has a tremendous impact on people's ability to get uh, non-farm work because uh, rural workers can move to nearby towns and get jobs, particularly rural women. So some of the infrastructure facilities have great impact. Developing smaller towns uh, again has an impact uh, because that creates jobs which are more dispersed jobs. So thinking in terms of smart job creation that is dispersed, that covers the whole country and ensuring that our population is reasonably well-skilled and able to take advantage of these two jobs is clearly the need of the time. Thank you so much for speaking to us, Professor. Thank you. In Focus, we'll be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.